Steve, what a great hymn. I had not heard that before, but I, I like that. That's wonderful. Well, I was reading in the newspaper yesterday, and it said that, that uh, families are spending more money on Father's Day than they have in the past. Now, I think that's appropriate. <laughs> Unless they are spending my money, I think that's appropriate. You know, when we start out as fathers, at least we have a good start. I mean, our children think that we are almost perfect. They think that we are some kind of a superhero, that we are exceptional. In fact, there was an elementary teacher who asked her students to describe their fathers. An eight-year-old boy wrote, He can climb the highest mountain or swim the biggest ocean. He can fly the fastest plane and fight the strongest tiger. But most of the time, he just carries out the garbage. (laughs) Well, that's true. I mean, you know, our children think we can do all these things. So, guys, whenever you're carrying out the garbage, maybe you ought to put on a cape and do it that way just just to encourage them. Well, even though we are flattered by what our, our children think about us in the beginning, the fact is society at large sees us as unnecessary. Increasingly, as time has gone by, society sees the father as being superfluous to the equation. There was an article in the American Psychologist that recorded, We do not believe that the data support the conclusion that fathers are essential to a child's well-being and that heterosexual marriages is the social context in which responsible fathering is most likely to occur. All right, so on, on one side we have children who see us as heroes, and then on the other side there are those who say that the father is really not necessary in society today. I probably agree more with Billy Graham's statement who said he was created as the human counterpart of God himself. Men, I believe that. I believe that God placed you in the family to be a reflection of God to your family. Today I want us to look at fathers. Take your Bibles, please. Turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 15. We'll begin reading in verse number 11. And we look at the father of the prodigal. And he said, a certain man had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. And he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now, when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be in need. And he went and attached himself to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into the fields to feed swine. And he was longing to fill his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving anything to him. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I am dying here with hunger. I will get up and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. And he got up and came to his father. 
But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and in your sight I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. And bring the fattened calf, kill it, and let us eat and be merry. For the son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to be merry. Now, as we look at this story told by Jesus, there are some things I think we can learn about fatherhood, about being a father. The first thing I see is the father's restraint. Now, men... Our primary responsibility is to work ourselves out of a job. Basically, what we are to do is to help our children become independent. And in order to do that, it, mu it means that we must allow them to make decisions and suffer whatever consequences come with those decisions. Now, as I look at the story we are looking at today... The boy made a decision. It was not a good decision, but the father nevertheless allowed him to make the decision. You see, restraint is not weakness. But a lack of restraint is normally, I think, a sign of immaturity. For instance, when a husband is going to dominate his wife, I mean, I'm going to see to it, that she is going to submit herself just like the good book says. That is a sign of immaturity because the Bible says that that is something the wife decides to do. But sometimes the husband thinks that is his job. I'm going to see to it that my wife submits herself to my authority. That is a sign of immaturity. Whenever parents dominate their children, that is a sign of immaturity. And you know the tragedy of it? When we dominate our children and constantly bail our children out of problems that they have created, then we raise children who do not know how to deal with the consequences of their actions. They are not able to make decisions and they are not able to accept failure and consequences for their actions. And that is a sign of immaturity on our part. When a, an employer dominates the employee, that is a sign of immaturity. Only the mature person will allow others to make decision. Because, you see, the fact is, as we restrain ourselves, we are allowing the other to become mature. God is uh, all-powerful. We know that. He can do anything He wishes to do that is in keeping with His character. But did you know that God restrains Himself in His relationship to you? He does, does He not? God restrains Himself in His relationship with you. For instance, He allows you to choose the kind of life you're going to lead. The Bible says in Deuteronomy chapter 11, verses 26 through 28, See, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing, if you listen to the commandments of the Lord your God, which I am commanding you today, and the curse, if you do not listen to the commandments of the Lord your God. 
So the scripture says then that God has put before you a blessing if you obey, a curse if you disobey. But he says, but you choose as to whether or not you are going to be obedient or you are going to be disobedient. Now, the consequence is established. But God restrains himself and allows you to choose the kind of life you're going to lead. He also restrains himself and allows you to choose the master you're going to serve. Elijah said, if God be God, follow him. On the other hand, if you believe Baal is God, then follow him. He says, but that is your choice. Joshua stood before the people of Israel and said, Choose you this day whom you will serve, but it's for me and my house. We will serve the Lord. He says, you choose. Who is the master of your life? Well, you decide that. You choose who is going to be the master of your life, and you choose the kind of life you're going to lead, and you choose your eternal destiny. The Scripture says in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, that God is not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Now, did you hear that? God does not wish for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the Bible tells us that most people go in the broad way that leads to death. Most people do not choose to commit their lives to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. So that is a choice that they make. God restrains himself in his dealing with us. And fathers, we have to restrain ourselves in our dealings with our children. Now, restraint is progressive as the child matures, then we give them more freedom. For instance, when our children were little, we told them what they were going to eat. You know, eat your applesauce or whatever it is that you give them. So you tell them what... To eat. As time goes by, then they make some of those decisions for themselves. When our children are young, when they are little, they are, they are told what time they're going to bed. You're going to bed at 8 o'clock. But whenever they get older, then we come to agreement on a curfew as to what is acceptable to both. So we see, first of all, a father's restraint. As I look at this passage of Scripture, I see a boy who is making a decision. It was not a good decision. It was not what the father wanted for the boy, but the father did not stop him from making the decision. A father's restraint. The second thing I see is a father's trust. It is necessary for us to trust our children as they make decisions. And the fact is, they don't always make good decisions. This boy didn't. If you notice there in verse number 12, The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. And he divided his wealth between them. The irony of this to me is that the boy wanted to be independent from the father, and yet he was dependent in his quest for independence. Father, I I want to be free. I, I want to do things my way. I want to live the life that I want to live. Now, give me uh, an inheritance so I can be independent. To me, that is the irony of the story. So he came to the father and said, Father, I want you to give my, give me my inheritance so I can live free, so I can be independent. Well, folks, the fact is, it is very difficult on parents when their children begin to come out from under the authority of the parent, even when that's natural. Now we know it's natural. It is not natural 
for a, a, a child to live all their life at home. I mean, you know, I, I remember Bill Cosby giving graduation speeches, and he, and he said, Go forth. We don't want you to stay here. Go forth. <laughs> it is not natural. And yet, when, when it, is, it is natural for them to come out from under the authority of the parent and go forth, but the parent has to adjust to that, even though it is difficult. I remember when my children went to college, and Stephanie went to college. We lived in Oklahoma City at that time. She went to college at Baylor, and we took her down there. I, I will never forget driving off and looking in the rearview mirror and see her standing there waving. I nearly died. I mean, that one, it, was, it was natural, and we were happy about it, but I was not happy about it either. And then when Eric went to Furman, and uh, we took, and I'm thinking, who am I going to watch sports with, Linda? <laughs> she doesn't have a clue about it. And so there, even though it is natural, you know, when our children go off from home, there is a sadness that goes with it. And then when they get married, you know, there's a there's a conflict between joy and sorrow. You are joyful that they're getting married, and yet there is the sorrow because you know they're marrying the wrong person. <laughs> and so there's that conflict that rages within you. And then they move off somewhere. Their job takes them someplace else, and you're not able to see them. And so even though what I'm saying is that even though it is natural for children to come out from under the authority of the parent to live their own life, there is difficulty with that. But what really breaks one's heart is when it is an act of rebellion. And that was the prodigal. He didn't want to be under the father's authority. It wasn't a natural thing for him. He just didn't want dad telling him what to do. He wanted to live his own life. So it was an act of rebellion. And when that happens to us, it breaks the parent's heart, does it not? When your children reject your authority, when they reject your values... It breaks the parent's heart. I know that there are some of you and you love the church. Goodness, you love the Lord and you love His church, but, but your children don't. And that breaks your heart. I know that there are some of you and you have tried to instill in your children godly values, but they don't value those values that you tried to instill, and that breaks your heart. I understand that because I did it. When I was a teenager growing up, I did it. And I know the sadness that it brings to parents when the child rebels against the authority of the parent. But the father has to honor the decision. That's the thing I'm saying is that the child makes the decision and then the father honors the decision. Even though it's not good, even though he doesn't agree with it, and even though it is going to bring hurt to the parent. And it did to this father. It brought her, there was a hurt of separation. He was not able to see his son because his, his son was in the distant land. His son was in the far country. So he was not going to be able to see his son. And there was a hurt of separation. There was the hurt of his sin. Verse number 13, it says, And not many days later the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. It breaks the heart of a parent when they see their children living in sin. 
You've loved them. You've prayed for them. But when your children rebel and they go out to live an ungodly life, I know so many who struggle with that. And it breaks the heart of the parent. And then there's the suffering of the child. In verse number 16, he was longing to fill his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving anything to him. Can you imagine? Now put yourself in the position of that father. Here is a Jewish father, and his son is living with pigs. He's eating with the pigs. Can you imagine being a father of a son like that and how your heart would be broken? See, it it, it broke his heart. Because of the rebellion of the boy. But he nevertheless lived in hope. Look at verse number 20. And he got up and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. Now that says to me, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. That says to me the father was looking for him. The father had lived all this time with all of this grief, with all of this hurt, believing that his son was going to come home. I know that there's some of you who are just that way. I mean, you have children and they have broken your heart and in that they have rebelled against the, the Lord. They've rebelled against the things of the God. They might have rebelled against the way that you tried to teach them and your heart has been broken. And yet you live in hope that they are going to return. I know that because, as I mentioned, I, I rejected the things that my parents had taught me when I was about 13 years old. And my father died believing that I would return. All that time he had hope that he had planted seeds in me that would come to fruition. And so he died, lived and died, believing that I would return. There's something else that I notice about this father. Not only was there the hurt and the hope that he had, but I also see his strength. And I believe this is really important for parents. You see, he kept the family intact. He did not allow the rebellion of this son to destroy the family. Did you notice that? He kept the family intact. The truth is we have to practice Tough love sometimes, and it's not easy. That's the reason it's tough love. Sometimes we have to do that. And as I look at this father, I see that he kept the family intact, and something else that I noticed, he did not mortgage the farm to pay to bail out the boy. He also kept the farm intact. So I see a father's trust. The son made a bad decision, but the father allowed him to make the decision, trusting and hoping that he was going to come back. Third thing I see is a a father's love. And regardless as to the actions of the children, fathers love their kids, don't we? Well, maybe not. I mean, you love those kids, don't you? I mean, they drive you nuts. They spend your money. They do all But you love those kids. Irma Bombeck wrote, If I had to tell someone's son what a father really does that is important, it would be that he shows up for the job in good times and bad times. That's a father. He shows up. 
He shows up for the job when it's easy, when it's hard, when it's good, when it's bad. A father shows up. Now, there are two sons, you're aware, in the story, and we are familiar with the prodigal, the one that I have been reading about. We know about his sin, we know about his rebellion, but what I want you to see is his repentance in verse 17. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I'm dying here with hunger? I will get up and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. Now, when I look at this boy, you understand that the father allowed him to go. The father didn't agree. It was a bad decision. But as a result of the consequence, I think, now then we see the boy come to repentance. First of all, he was aggravated with himself. The Bible says when he came to his senses, he's saying, I must have been out of my mind. I'm out here living with the pigs and my father's servants are, they're living in luxury compared to the way I'm living. I must have been out of my mind to do this. So he was aggravated with his decision. He was convicted of his sin because his behavior was unacceptable. What I have done is wrong. And then he confessed his sin. He said, I have sinned. I like that he got honest about it. We have all these euphemisms today. But not this young man who was in the pig pen. He said, I have sinned. I was out of my mind when I left home. When I rebelled against a loving father and put myself in this position, I was out of my mind. He said, I have sinned. So we see the repentance of the prodigal. But then there's the elder son. And I really, I'm not going to dwell on the elder son, but I really believe that the story was written about the elder son. Now look at verse number 25. Now his older son was in the, in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. And uh, he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things might be. What's going on in the house? And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed a fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he became angry and was not willing to go in. Now he's pouting. He said, I, if I'm not going in there with that boy. And his father came out and began entreating him, but he answered and said to his father, Look, For so many years I've been serving you, and I have never neglected a command of yours. Yet you have never given me a kid that I might be merry with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth with harlots, you killed the fattened calf for him. Now, the elder son obviously is resentful of the thing. He resented his father. He said, what are you doing? This sorry son of yours, he's come home and and you are welcoming him home. He resented the father. He resented his brother. But then as I look at the story, the father loved both of them. He loved the prodigal and he loved the elder brother. Now he tried to minister or reach out to the elder son in verse 31. He said to him, my child, you've always been with me and all that is mine is yours. He reminded him of his acceptance. He said, my son, you're my son. And, and he, he acknowledged uh, appreciation for me. He said, you've always been with me. You're right. You've always been here. You have helped me. I, I've always been able to depend on you. And so he expressed appreciation to him. And then he says, now, everything I have is yours. 
All that is mine is yours, always has been. Now, just because I didn't kill the fattened calf for you, for your friends, he said, but it's always been yours. And so the father reached out to him. The father expressed love to his prodigal as well. He welcomed him in verse number 20. And he got up and came to his father while he was still a long way off. His father saw him, felt compassion for him, and ran and embraced him and kissed him. He saw him while he was a long way off, indicates that he was looking for him. He felt compassion for him. He felt for this wayward boy. My brother, made, uh, who pastors in Houston, made a statement once that I really consider to be profound. He said, a parent is no happier than their saddest child. See, that was this father. He had compassion for his boy. Because this boy was hurting, he ran to him, couldn't wait to get to him, embraced him. How long had it been since someone touched this boy with genuine compassion and love? He embraced him and he kissed him. The word that is used there means that he repeatedly kissed him. He ran to him, he hugged him, and he just kissed him as he welcomed him home. He accepted him in verse number 22. The father said to his slaves, quickly bring out the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand, and sandals on his feet. Give him a clean robe. Can you imagine how smelly the robe must have been that he was wearing in the pig pen? Get him a robe. Now, the robe here is a ceremonial robe. It was exquisitely designed and very expensive. And he said, get the robe and put it on him. Put, put the ring on his hand. Now, that was the crest ring of the family. It identified him with the family. He had the authority now of the family. Take the ring. Put it on him. It was exclusively to the family member, and it symbolized his reception. He said, get the shoes and put on him. Only sons wore shoes, not slaves. And so what the father is doing with all of this is to saying to the boy, I welcome you back home. And then he celebrated. It was a planned celebration in verse number 23. It says, and bring the fattened calf. Now, he didn't say a calf, but he said the calf, the fattened calf, the calf that we have been fattening up, anticipating that this boy was going to come home. It was a planned celebration, and it was a necessary celebration. Verse number 32, but we had to be merry and rejoice. For this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live and was lost and has been found. We had to do it. It was a celebration that was necessary and it was a celebration of gratitude. He said he was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and he's found. And the father welcomed him home. Now you know that in this story, the father represents God. In the story, the Father represents God. And we see in this story then how God deals with us. God restrains Himself and allows us to make decisions, and some of them are good and some of them are bad, but He allows us to make decisions. And God loves us regardless. If you make a good decision, God loves you. If you make a bad decision, God loves you. He still loves you, but understand this, there are consequences that go with our decisions. My guess is there are some of you who might say today that I'm in the, I'm in the distant land, the far country. Today I would encourage you to be as this young man, come to your senses, repent, 
and come home. Understanding that the Father is waiting for you to come. And when you do, He will embrace you and accept you if you come to Him. Our Father in God, I thank you for this wonderful story that is a reflection of your heart. And Lord, today I pray for those who are in the distant land that they might come to you today. Be forgiven, be restored, be born again. I pray, Heavenly Father, that the Holy Spirit will draw them to you today in Jesus' name. Amen. In just a moment, we're going to stand and the choir is going to sing as we extend an invitation to you. I'm going to ask you today, if you're here without Christ, that you commit your life to Him. If you're looking for a church home, our doors open to you. We'd love to have you. Stand with me, please, as we stand. They sing, and as they sing, you come. I'll greet you as you do.